Peace will be achieved by helping Afghanistan develop its own stable government. Peace will be achieved by helping Afghanistan train and develop its own national army. And peace will be achieved through an education system for boys and girls which works. are some areas where we can actually uh, measure the progress. Uh, for example, in uh, education, there's been significant progress. The United States has been quite uh, involved in moving from a school population of a little less than a million, nearly all of whom are boys, to a population of 7 million, 40% of whom are girls, and there's about 5 to 6 million more. So we're going to be able to measure that. That's pretty much all we need to set up this episode, because it's more or less the premise under which Asmat Khan of BuzzFeed News began her reporting. Here were the highest-ranking government officials, and there were others, but the voices you just heard were George Bush in 2002 and Hillary Clinton in 2009. Here were these officials touting for years the successes of U.S. education efforts in Afghanistan. Asmat felt that the narrative had gone mainly unchecked, so she decided to do something about that. She wanted to know if this legacy was accurate. She put it pretty succinctly in the middle of our conversation. I mean, I had no idea what I would find. I didn't know that I would find, for example, even ghost schools. I didn't, yeah. I, you know, this was about looking at the legacy of America's education efforts in Afghanistan. So what it wound up being was very, it was very much bigger than, hey, here's just a bunch of schools in the books that were either never completed, never finished, or don't function. And they came, what I found out to be, what we call outright lies. Today we're talking about this multifaceted, hugely impactful story. Asmat went school to school and found some that were empty and barely standing. She found many others that were operating without running water or anything resembling proper facilities. And others just weren't where they were supposed to be. So the story became about these ghost schools. And then later, when she started hearing about U.S. funding going towards students and teachers who didn't exist, it became about so much more. The final product is called Ghost Students, Ghost Teachers, Ghost Schools. And today, Osmont takes us through about seven intense months of reporting. I'm Sean Shinneman, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. My name is Asmat Khan, and I'm an investigative reporter with BuzzFeed News. You might have already been introduced to Asmat. As of this recording, she has some 535,000 Facebook followers. The exact number is slightly more than her former employer the PBS show Frontline, where she worked as a producer and a reporter. After that, she produced and reported for Al Jazeera America, 1.4 million FB followers, for the record, 
covering stories from bankruptcy in Detroit to abortion in Brazil. In December, she joined BuzzFeed, an outlet she found appealing for its ability and its willingness to innovate, among other reasons. The thing that I loved most was really just being relentless on one subject, maybe an injustice, some sort of a problem, and digging into it very deeply. And I knew I wanted to do that, but I also knew, having you know worked in TV and done digital for TV, that I wanted to do it at a digital-first outlet. And there was really only one place where I thought I would get the best of both of those worlds, and it felt like it was BuzzFeed News, which you know, has this incredible investigations team led by somebody whom I would want to be my editor, whom I would want to learn from, and knew I could learn a lot from. Um, And also in an environment where, you know, it's experimenting, they're innovating, there's a lot happening, and it just brought together all of the things I wanted in one place. When she interviewed with BuzzFeed, Asmat was asked to supply a few pitches. An idea to investigate U.S. education efforts in Afghanistan had been floating around her mind for a little while. She'd covered Afghanistan and Pakistan during her time at PBS and had always been interested in the area. And people were sort of evaluating lessons learned and the legacy, the U.S. legacy in the country. Education was one that had always stood out to me as this incredibly successful legacy, the one that, you know, you could look at and say that the country was much better off because of. And I really just wanted to learn more about that. I knew that there were lots of schools built, Um, But I also knew that um, they were just as many other things embroiled in some of the problems that have plagued the war effort there. And if it had succeeded in spite of that, you know, there was some really incredible story to be told. And so I was looking for lessons learned um, and, you know, what was successful that could have been replicated. And, you know, if it wasn't, you know, what went wrong? It was an ambitious premise, particularly when it's your first story at a new job. But at that point, Osmond had no idea what her story would become. No idea that she'd end up calling her editor, Mark Schufs, from Afghanistan and asking for more time. Time that he would ultimately grant. You know, I asked for more time in Afghanistan because it felt bigger and bigger and more and more important to get. Um, And so what I'd originally pitched was not you know, what it was. It became something much bigger and took a lot more time to do, but it felt like it was the right thing to do, and my editor agreed, and it just seemed like a good investment of our time and resources. The story mattered to me, or I think it was on my radar, because I had remembered from early on when this war started that education was always talked about as the positive, enduring legacy of this war. Osmat's first steps was to go read through the congressional record of every public hearing she could find concerning Afghanistan. Senator House. She looked for references to schools or education. And what I saw was pretty stunning. You know, you had these individuals from Secretary Clinton. Uh, for example, in uh, education, there's been significant progress. The United States to has Ambassador been Eikenberry. There's been uh, remarkable progress since the uh, very dark days of uh, Taliban of 2001. You mentioned one education. In 2001, there was one million children going to school. They were most all boys. They were receiving a certain persuasion of education. Today, there are 6.5 million Afghan children who are going to school. About 35% of those are girls. Um, to senior officials from USAID, all of whom who very specifically, you know, when things were going wrong or something wasn't working, 
The one success story cited was education and schooling. Then, Asmat learned about some data. And I, I think I got it in January. The data proved to be huge, and it drove the reporting, particularly in the early stages. It included GPS coordinates for all the schools built by USAID dollars, as well as... I had contractor information. I had um, also what USAID had listed as enrollment or student attendance. I guess the actual data called it occupant information. With the data secured, Asma prepared to depart for Afghanistan. So I had a little bit to start from that gave me, I think, a great grounding, and it really grew from there. It's also important to note that Asmat had already initiated conversations with USAID at this point. USAID, by the way, is the United States Agency for International Development. We'd had a phone call, um, and I started looking at what the data said in terms of the numbers of how many schools USAID um, had either built or refurbished. And I noticed that there was a distinction, there was a difference between the numbers that I was reading on USAID's website and the numbers I saw in the data. Asma made it a point to ask specifically about the number. I've seen on your website that there are, you know, in some cases more than 680, and right now it says there's 605. You know, which of these is correct, and um, is there an updated number? Because what I was seeing was different, and uh, they couldn't answer it at the time. It was more than a month before Asmat got her initial answer, 566 schools. It would not be USAID's final answer. Okay, so I'm going to take a back seat for a bit and just let Asmat tell you about her time in Afghanistan. It spanned two months. BuzzFeed visited 50 schools over seven provinces. Asmat went to most. One of the things that was important to me was that I went to these schools unannounced. So um, with the exception of one school that I went to, all of the ones I went to, I went to unannounced. So they did not know I was coming in advance, and I would just show up at the door. And in this way, I think actually being a woman helped me. There are ways in which it hurt me as I was reporting, but um, in this way, it helped me. How so? Uh, it's a lot less threatening and, and seemingly harmful if a woman shows up at the door of a school. Um, most of these schools had boundary walls, um, so there would be a walled off structure around them. So not just anybody could just come in and show up. Um, and then there would be a little bit of a dance or a negotiation um, before being allowed in. Sometimes I would be allowed in and just told to sit down while the headmaster was called. You know, in one instance, they called actually the district education director, and they had him meet me. Um, talk to me a little bit about the school, show me around. There was one instance in which I went to a school, um, you know, it was agreed upon with that district education director that, um, you know, in exchange for him going with me to three of these other schools, that we would go to one school, which he told in advance that we were coming. And when we got to that school, there were tons of girls there. And they had all these books in front of them. When I asked any of them to read those English books, none of them could. Um, and it was clearly, you know, a school that had been, you know, warned in advance and told to be ready and prepared with all of these things and for the children to be able to recite um, some poems and, and whatnot. Um, but that was the one example in which I went to a school in which, you know, they'd been informed in advance. If you're working with locals, oftentimes they will tell a school in advance because... 
um, it's the type of thing police can get involved in is somebody just showing up to a school. In some ways, I was protected because I was a woman and I was a foreigner. Um, and so it was a little bit easier for me to come to a school and tell them, look, hey, I understand that USAID or I understand that um, the United States military funded the building of the school. I'm just trying to understand you know, how it's performing and how things are going. Um, I know that in Kandahar, originally, when I chose up to a school, um, it's called Sher Mohammed Hotak, um, the district education director was called. You know, I had to wait there for a little while. And in the meantime, you know, I took some photos and went into some classrooms and he showed up and he said, listen, you know, I'll, you can interview me, but if you're going to come to our school again or come to any of the schools in this district, you need to have a letter from the Department of Education of the province. And it took me a little while to get, but ultimately I did get a letter from the Kandahar Department of Education that allowed me to go and visit schools. I just had to show the letter at every door. At one point, I had gone to the school, the first school in which the district education director had later on informed me, look, if you're going to come back or go to any of the schools in this district, you need to have a letter. And this was in Jare, um, the main district you know, the district in which, you know, that is home to the birthplace of the Taliban. Um, you know, this was the main part of the story, the main place in the story. And so I had to get the letter, but I remember at one point I learned about a jirga, a district jirga that had happened in which it had been mentioned that I'd been coming to schools and there had been people who weren't just tribal elders at this meeting, and I was a little bit worried at the time that, okay, you know, they're talking about how I've been coming around, so it's known that I'm coming, and I remember, you know, I almost canceled some visits after that, and what I wound up doing was not staying very long to the school. I didn't stay as long as I'd originally anticipated at some of the schools that I was going to in that district, and it was just a judgment call based on security at the time. In Jare District, Osmot came upon the building that would serve as the story's main photo. It's a long, one-story building that's sort of a cream, tannish color. From the photo, I count four doors and eight windows. Or I count their frames, at least. The actual doors and windows aren't there anymore, and neither is the roof. It sort of just looks like a collection of forgotten walls. It was in the USAID data, but when Osmot showed up, no one was there. And I really just wanted to see why a school had been built there, because it was quite far off. It was in this area that was desert, and it wasn't very populated. And, um, you know, I was able to go with local elders from that area. And on the way, they told me, oh, yes, you know, it was built not so well. The roof collapsed. But when we got there, we realized it actually wasn't even being used as a school. It looked like the roof had collapsed. Um, and when we asked you know, someone who lived there, um, you know, you know, he said that, look, the school was destroyed because of fighting. But I didn't see, for example, when a school is burnt down, you can see charred remains. And I didn't see charred remains. And the reality is I don't know what happened to this school. It's possible it was destroyed in fighting. It's possible that it, you know, was what was originally told to me as the roof collapsed. I was just wondering, like, what it was like for you personally to show up to mm -hmm. these schools 
And like it, to me, it seems like it would be something that would be sort of eerie to show up to these schools and I just see, see them completely abandoned. And like, like I didn't like. I wondered if you like stepped inside and walked around and took Absolutely. photos. Absolutely, yeah. In this case, you know, we arrived to this boundary wall and we walked in, and I just saw these two empty buildings, and the roof is gone. There's no one there. There were, you know, the people who'd come with us, and that was it. Um, and I, you know, I shot video at the time, and I looked back at it later, and it was eerie. Although at the time when I was standing there, it didn't feel that way, and I could hear myself asking, "What well, at one point in this time? At one point in time, was the school functioning?" And I was told, "Yes, it was." Um, and and that that was what happened when I showed up at literally an empty school. It's interesting to hear you say that it didn't feel eerie to you in the moment, but only like kind of when you were looking back at it. And I wonder, um, why do you think that is? I don't think I was scared when I was there. Um, It was just, it was actually quite a peaceful setting, and it was a beautiful day, and it was sad to see a school in that state, but it wasn't, I wasn't afraid. Every school had its own backstory and required its own reporting. Asmat showed up to one that consisted of seven tents and a few bathrooms. It was on the books for $150,000 in government funding. And it took me a long time to figure out that the original school built by USAID had been destroyed in Canadian bombardments. Um, it took a long time to uncover that fact. It <laughs> was actually, it actually learned that in the United States um, when I was able to get a hold of a report. But when I was there, I had no idea. I talked to, you know, the district governor. I talked to, at the time of the that the school was built. I talked to the district education director. I talked to the headmaster. I talked to many people in effort to understand locals, people who went to the school to finally figure out, okay, the original school was destroyed, but it's unclear by whom. And then this temporary school was built. Um, and to learn that this wasn't the original construction that cost $150,000, these seven tents. During Asmat's reporting and her trips from school to school, she started to hear rumblings about inaccuracies within the student and teacher numbers kept on file for various schools, which, compared to the structural problems, might seem like a minor thing. But these skewed numbers had wider implications. They helped determine how much aid the U.S. provides. I did interviews and interviews and interviews, and one person introduced me to another, to another, to another, and it just continues. Eventually, she found a group that had done a statistical analysis of enrollment information as a part of a USAID program. And that was when I first got that report from 2006 that showed that these schools were leaking up to one-fifth, at least one-fifth of their student population every year through dropouts, but they were still being counted as enrolled. The more Osmont reported the issue, the more she discovered that the flawed grasp on how schools function on the ground skews the way that the U.S. distributes funds. And I even found, for example, in U.S. reports, in SERP data, as well as in other reports, examples of, you know, hey, there's a camp of IDPs in this one part of JRA where there are nine schools on the books, but really only one functions. And here's what locals said about it. Or, you know, in the SERP data, there would be, for example... Um, this 
military spending data for these humanitarian urgent projects. You know, there would be, you know, amounts agreed to to fix school systems um, where there were like eight schools functioning on the books, um, but really only one on the ground. Osmat took the story further still, connecting U.S. money to known Afghan warlords, a part of the story she said nobody was really talking about. You know, I did not know going into this how many times that I would learn about a strongman getting these resources and that disrupting the local community and really turning people um, away from the local government or even just disillusioning them to American aid and maybe doing the opposite of winning the hearts and minds. In one instance, Azmat struggled to track down a school in the numbers before eventually tracking it to powerful warlord Abdul Razak. All we could find was a mud school. And this continued after I left, where I just asked someone to continue going to every single school that was built by foreigners in that district of Spindle Dock. And I would use the metadata on the photos that were taken at each school to measure up and see if it matched up with the GPS location of the school we were looking for. And when we did, we found out it was a school named after Abdul Razak, who was the police chief of Kandahar and is the most powerful warlord in southern Afghanistan. Um, and who is accused of grave human rights abuses, of drug smuggling, of many other injustices, um, and who was a key American partner, and that this school didn't open up for three years after it was built, according to locals, because it was just desert, far away from villages. There weren't people living there. But it wound up in this village, even though the records say it's elsewhere. Osmat got back to the U.S. in April, and still had a ton to do to make sense of her on-the-ground reporting and contextualize it with data sets and interviews. There was a lot of the numbers games, the USAID, former employees that I spoke with. A lot of that happened in the United States and built on relationships I'd made when I was in Afghanistan. But, you know, it just took a lot of time to get, you know, be one person would introduce me to another, and that just, like, went on for quite a while until all the pieces came together and I had the information. And data. I mean, I got so many different sets of data from people. And that was, I mean, that was the big part of it, looking at those schools that were open on the books and not open in reality. I mean, these are data sets that I got, and then I would compare them with what had been publicly reported, and it just wasn't something I'd done on the ground when I was there. It took me, like, you know, time to sit back, open up laptops, computers, look at yeah. these different sets of data and find those discrepancies. By late May, Osmond had a first draft ready to go. Just weaving it all together was pretty difficult, but I had an excellent editor who really, really made me better at that um, and sort of synthesizing what was most important and what to drill out and how to tell it in a way that's compelling for the reader. There's very little wiggle room in Osmond's story. It's not, here's what the government said, but we think it might be more like this. It's, hey, here's their story, here's the reality. And here's one of the last paragraphs of Osmond's article. Quote, Since 2002, the United States has invested more than $1 billion to provide education to Afghan children. But the American government does not know how many schools it has built, how many Afghan students are actually attending school, or how many teachers are actually teaching. What's certain is that the numbers for all of those are far less than what it has been peddling. I asked Azamat about the authority, the tone of absolute certainty that runs through her piece. One of the things that I was really grateful about with the story was that my editor was willing to call what we found what it is. Um, 
And in this case, you know, when things didn't add up and they were known inaccuracies and it was known that the records or earlier statements had said one thing, but the reality was something else, was we were going to identify that. Um, we weren't going to sweep it under the rug. And I think one thing that just really stands out to me are these numbers that we saw used for years. They were in congressional testimony that there were 680 schools built um, or refurbished. USAID eventually gave Osmond a final number of 563 schools, 117 less than it had claimed for years. But as she alluded to in her story, it's tough to say how accurate that number really is. There was little to no explanation for any of this. Um, and so digging deeply into it is what I think gave the story the authority that it had. What was the what was the night before publication like for you? Are you someone who, who can't sleep? <laughs> we were in the office until 3 a.m. Richard <laughs> was next to me. We hit publish at 3 a.m. or 2 a.m. or something <laughs> like that. Actually, I remember um, I had asked USAID and DOD to provide any final responses or feedback to our no surprises letters um, by I think that Monday. I can't remember exactly when, and they each each of them asked for more time. Um, and so we wound up giving them both more time. And so it got, our publication date got pushed back while they asked for more time to respond. Did you say no surprises letter? Yeah. So this is a great thing that Mark Schuess does is he wants us, you know, the idea is that a subject should be, um, they can be enraged, but they can't be surprised. Like they should know what's coming. So they have the ability to respond to it accurately. Um, and so we told them, each, both DOD and USAID, every major fact pertinent to them um, that was we were planning on publishing before the story was published. And wow. we allowed them to respond to any of it. And this is after, especially with USAID, like months of questions. And, you know, it was very difficult to get answers on the record from them for a long time. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, you know, whether because of bureaucracy or whatever the reasoning was. Um, so so that I hadn't dealt with them a lot. So your story is completely written, and then you send, and then you send that? That's got to be kind of nerve-wracking. Um, no, I mean, I think I was just very excited because I had to respond. I was used to, like, getting omissions and half responses. Yeah, and yeah I guess so that's I actually true. was very happy to have that out. I mean, I felt good about it. Also, if, you know, if you get something wrong, you want to be told. You want to know that you're getting it wrong. Um, so this was really an opportunity to, to fact-check as well. Um, in addition to the fact-checking that was happening, this was a great way to, you know, go to them and say, hey, look, we've been talking for a long time. You've told me one thing repeatedly, and I found another. Let's talk about that. Osmond's story came out early the morning of July 9th. She says she's been pleasantly surprised by the amount of traction it's found. I got so many emails from soldiers, actually. That was surprising to me. Hmm. Um, who said that they saw similar instances of SERP money being used a certain way, and um, you know they wanted to talk about their own experiences with that military funding for these humanitarian projects. Um, I was also surprised by sort of the reaction I got within the development community, which was so positive. Um, you know, I do know that, you know, USAID told, again, you know, what they'd already told me, which is that they didn't think this was representative of their work. USAID did not come out of the story looking good. You know, there hasn't been pushback on it publicly. Um, and I think a big part of that is the fact that you would need 
evidence to push back against it with, and it just doesn't exist. So, um, yeah, it was a, it was a mixed reaction um, by them, but I do know that they weren't happy. They're not pleased with the story. I think this does not make them look good in their yeah. eyes. Um, and I think one of the biggest reasons for that, specific to USAID, is the fact that so much of their funding is dependent on how members of Congress perceive them. To that end, Senator Bob Casey of Pennsylvania sent a letter to USAID calling for more information on the agency's education programs in Afghanistan. As Osmot wrote on BuzzFeed News, Casey voiced concerns about the inaccurate student estimates and said he was particularly disturbed by the fact the investigation found that, quote, some U.S.-built schools have fallen into disuse and disrepair. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. And head over to ire.org slash podcast to browse our archives. The IRE Radio Podcast is produced by myself and web editor Sarah Hutchins. And as always, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast, IRE, or anything else, please do drop us an email. You'll find our emails in the show notes. And that is it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Sean Chinnaman. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that already. Okay. Podcast. Podcast.